Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at SpoilerCountry at gmail.com. Join the queue of the Spoilerverse! Just spoiler country. I'm Johnny Horsley, and Kendrick Regan's not here because he is off doing Kendrick Regan things, and I am here doing intro outros for you, the people listening to the show. And today, the show is pretty. And today on the show, it's pretty special because we got for you one of the guys who's been on the show more times than pretty much anybody else as a guest, and that's Ron Randall. And he is back to talk about his new book, Trekker: Hunter's Moon. He just did a successful campaign recently for. Trekker, The Complete Journey, Volume 1, which I just got in the mail actually last week. It's amazing. And this book looks pretty awesome as well. New story, Hunter's Moon. Ron sat down with Melissa, who you've heard on the show before. She's our new interviewer. She is amazing. They sat down and chatted about Trekker, chatted about the story and everything they're doing. The campaign is doing amazing right now. It's at $51,000, which is insane. It's got eight days left to go. Seven days as you're hearing this, eight of me recording this. So it's got one week left. Get out there and back it. But without hearing me ramble anymore, let's cut in here and listen to Melissa talk to Ron in his own words. This is Spoiler Country, and I'm Melissa Searcha. Today on the show, I'm thrilled to have on the legendary comic book artist, Mr. Ron Randall. Welcome back to the show. Thanks very much, Melissa. Thanks so much for being here. How are you today? Just fine. I'm having a great time. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Well, as we were talking before, you've been on the show several times. This is our first time chatting, so I'm really excited. So I'd like to just kind of get some info, background info. How did you get into the business of comics? Oh, well, my, my origin story. You want my origin story? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, when I, was, when I was a little kid, comics were pretty much ubiquitous. They were all around. And uh, I describe it as uh, I, I viewed comic books the way I viewed candy bars. They were just part of a kid's life. And you, you took them for granted. You never thought very seriously, and I was pretty young, you know, about where these things came from. You just went to the store, you'd buy a candy bar, you'd get a comic book, you know. Yeah. But when, early on when I was in grade school, I ran into a kid who, a classmate of mine, we became buddies, and I was over his house one time, and we were playing, and I saw that he had these stacks of comic books. And they were sorted by different categories, by different authors and, and titles and stuff. Wow. And and for some reason, a light bulb sort of went off in my brain when I realized that people actually made these for a living. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. like you know, they just spat out of some you know dispenser machine. <laughs> they were actually created. And I thought, that would be a cool thing to do. So that kind of that kind of planted the seed, I guess I'd say, in little young Ronnie Randall's brain around second, third, fourth grade. 
shortly thereafter, this friend and me and a few other guys, we started, you know, making up our own characters and doing our own <laughs> little drawings. Fun. Um, yeah. And as the years went by, one at a time, the other these guys all drift off and want to, you know, um, being distracted by other hobbies and other interests. And mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason, uh, I, I never stopped. I, something had kicked in with me and I just kept at it. So kept going. Um, I can't explain it. I just can't explain it. But it, 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 it bit deep and hard with me. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. And you've worked with some pretty, you know, big names in the industry, Dark Horse, DC, Marvel, just to name a few. How did those experiences sort of shape who you are as an artist? Well, let's see, how can I the thing that happened before I started working for DC and Marvel, when you say what shaped me, the first thing that comes to mind is one of the when I was coming up, one of the great legendary artists, writers at the time was a guy named Joe Kubert, who who created, you know, a Hawkman and worked on the Flash back in the Golden Age of Comics, and he created Sergeant Rock and Enemy Ace, and he did a legendary run of Tarzan comics through DC Comics. And I was, as a kid, I just worshipped this guy's storytelling, and I wound up getting to go to the school that he had started in New Jersey, and so that was something that was really shaped a lot of my my career because Joe instilled uh, a passion for storytelling mm-hmm. and uh, a sense of a, a hard-nosed sort of pragmatic professional approach to doing something you're passionate about, which is which is not an easy combination to make work out. So that really set my trajectory in a lot of ways. So working at DC, working at uh, Marvel, and then later at Dark Horse, it just it just sort of reinforced or reiterated a lot of those lessons I'd got from Joe about uh, the, the the approach that I felt you needed to take to make it in this business, and that's. Part of you has to be sort of, you know, very, you know, again, very pragmatic about it. You, you've got to get the work done. You've mm-hmm. got to get it done to a certain level of professionalism, and you can't be precious about it. The page is done. It's good. It goes because it's mm-hmm. got to be printed. You know, th- those comics are regular monthly schedule. And if yeah. you blew a deadline, there was a chance that publisher was going to, they've already paid for the press time. And, yeah. if the, and if the book doesn't show up in time, they eat that loss. And wow. then they have to print the book again. They have to basically pay to have it printed twice, essentially. So uh, a lot of people getting into comics don't understand that reality. And they think that they're getting into comics and it's a way to be just, you know, an artiste with a capital A. <laughs> and it ain't that. It's just not. You can get away with that and you can blow deadlines mm-hmm. uh, and you can alienate editors. And you can get away with that by playing a shell game for a while. But sooner or later, it catches up with you. Yeah. And unless you're one of the handful of like the top five guys in the business, <laughs> you can't get away with that for a sustained period of time. And even if you do, you're kind of being a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, the book industry is very, you know, similar. Yeah. You have deadlines and you have to be professional. There's time to be creative. And then there's a time to say, you know what, I can only edit so much. It's got to go to the editor because they, they have a release date. And like you said, uh, there's money on the line. So very similar. But yeah, a lot of people don't that are get, just getting into it. They don't realize all that. They think it's just going to be fun and games and sit back. But there is a, a it's a business. It's a job. Yeah. I, when I talk to like you know, a classroom of kids or something about comics and it starts off with usually sort of a, a show and tell se- session mm-hmm. where, I, where I show some of the work that I've done and and ask them what they think the most important, you know, uh, ability to have to to make it in this field. And it's a trick question because what I expect them to answer, and what they usually do say is, you have to be able to draw really well. And I say, that's very important. It's maybe the fifth or sixth most important thing in the job. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing in my job, and I'm sure it's true when you're a prose writer too, is you have got to 
you got to enjoy sitting in a room all by yourself <laughs> creating without anybody patting you on the head or giving you little treats you know <laughs> uh, you, it's got to be an internally driven thing because otherwise you won't you can't force yourself to sit down and write or draw mm -hmm. e enough to get good enough to get in the business and then to be able to produce enough to stay in the business we are artists we are creative and at the same time we have to conduct it like a business so every page there's that war going on how good can I afford to make this page <laughs> before <laughs> I have to move on to the next and fight the next battle? I'll do better next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's putting your butt in the chair and establishing mm -hmm. a routine, really, because you know if you wait wait for inspiration to strike, you'll be waiting forever. Exactly, you have to yeah. create it. Yeah, definitely. So, what was your? And this might be a, a question that you you might not be able to answer, but what was your favorite uh, comic to work on in your career that really just made you go, wow, this is, I did make the right decision. Well, this has been an incredibly self-serving answer, but I swear it's the absolute truth. Uh, and that is the book that I'm working on right now, which mm -hmm. is Trekker. Uh, okay. Trekker is the title that I had this golden and very rare opportunity in comics. I was, when I first started working for Dark Horse, they, they invited me to work for them when they were just starting out. And I'd been working in the business for a few years, was doing a regular monthly gig at DC Comics. And Dark Horse said, if you come and work for us, we will pay you and you can do whatever you want, which is like the the unrefusable <laughs> offer. You can't, you know. <laughs> so I got to create my dream series. I took them exactly at their word, saying that I could do what I want, not what I thought would be a big hit or what mm -hmm. would be easy for them to sell. It would be, you know, commercially viable, but just what would I most want to do? So I assembled the series that just answered that question for myself and myself only mm -hmm. as best yeah. I could. So yeah. I created a series. It was, a, it, it checked all the boxes for me. It was a science fiction series. It's about a young woman who's a bounty hunter. At the time, this is back in the mid 1980s. There weren't very many science fiction comics out there. There were very few female driven comics out there. There were n almost no comic books that were science mm -hmm. fiction, female driven where the hero dressed and acted and behaved anything like realistic. So I wanted a character who dressed as if her job was to go out and bring down, you know, killers. <laughs> so <laughs> she has pads and straps and gear. She's not prancing around in high heels and cleavage and all that sort of stuff. Because I felt I needed to make this character really believable, or I wouldn't believe in my own series. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be able to mm -hmm. sustain my own interest in it. Anyway, so yeah. So that's the series that I created, and my primary goal was to, I mean, I felt I could tell a, a pretty good, you know, action adventure tale, because I've been drawing them for a number of years. Mm -hmm. But to craft a series, I knew it had to be about more than that. So it's about this young woman's life journey, and, and I'm trying to make that as compelling and believable and, and realistic and complex and nuanced as I journey as I can. And I disguise it as a series of self-contained action adventure science fiction comics. So, so Trekker's the, Trekker's the yeah. one for me. I've and had I a know, lot of, oh, go ahead. Sorry, no, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, I, not to do a disservice to a lot of the other books that I have worked on, uh, where I was a hired gun, you know, for DC and Dark Horse and Marvel. I've got a chance to work on Supergirl and Swamp Thing and Star Wars and Star Trek and Justice League and Swamp Thing and Predator. And I've wow. had a lot of fun working on a lot of, a lot of great titles, but that's all. I just I say that's like babysitting somebody else's child. 
<laughs> you know, because yeah. when you work in those jobs, to an extent, you're a caretaker. It is a property uh, that does not belong to you. Mm-hmm. And you, it's an honor to be able to, you know, be a little part of the legacy of those characters. And again, I'm not trying to take anything away from them, but tre- Trekker comes from just the guts of who I am. And it's, you know, everything I want to say in comics with the sort of storytelling that I do, I can funnel it all into the pages of Trekker. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, actually, you might kind of answered it already, but is it, do you find it easier or harder to work on original material or an already established universe? Boy, that's a really good question. I I, I don't know. I have a good answer for you. And the reason (laughs) is that when I'm working on something that's established, be a chore to try to find your way into that. You have to come up with your version of or your take on an established character that is as far as possible, at least I feel this way, you know, true to what's there, and yet try to give it a little bit of your own flavor, your own spin on it as well. And that can be a fine line to walk where you're not violating too much of one or the other, it seems. Yeah. But at the same time, you're you're in those cases I've always it's been I've given a script, there's sort of a template down there. And you can just go along with that. So, so some of that work is easier because of the part of the job that's already established for you to follow through on. Whereas doing something like Trekker, you know, the buck starts and stops with me. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the, I, I do the job soup to nuts. I, I came up with the concept of the series. I come up with the outlines. I write the stories. I do the penciling. Mm-hmm. I do the inking. I do the coloring. I do the lettering. I do all that now myself. Oh. And that's a lot of hats to wear. And I can't pass the buck along to anybody else if it doesn't turn out <laughs> right. So it's, I just say that it's, that's, Trekker is the most, the most intense and the most demanding and exhausting job I do. And it's also far and away the most rewarding for those exact same reasons. Right. Because you know that it's completely 100% your vision and w- whether or not, however it's received, and I know it's been received extremely well, but you get to, you know, full responsibility and credit for of that and I feel there is a, a bigger sense of accomplishment when you know you've done it yourself. Yeah, exactly. Well, when I'm at a, back when we had conventions, <laughs> we hope yeah, we get there. I remember again, those too long. Yeah, <laughs> fondly remember those days. But <laughs> when somebody would come up to my my, my booth and say, I, "I really liked you know the those issues of Supergirl that you drew or something," that's it's very nice to hear that they liked the, my rendition of the character and and all that. But when somebody comes up to me and says, "I love Mercy St. Clair," which is the name mm. of the character in Trekker, mm-hmm. that it's like the secret handshake to the club. It's like, that's a message from a kindred spirit. I mean, it just goes a lot more deeper into me because Trekker comes from a deeper place in me. You know, I mean, with Trekker, all of my sensibilities, my temperaments, my values, a lot of who I am as a human being finds its way into those stories. And so when someone says, yeah, I like that, you know, I feel that, yeah, they like a lot of the stuff that's really in my heart. And so that's an intense, that's an intense. Yeah, it resonates more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I know you've mentioned this earlier, you've been creating this comic tracker for Mm -hmm. a long time since the late 80s. (laughs) And, and so how has it evolved from then to now? In lots of ways. First, I guess I should say, uh, people who don't know sort of the, the history of Trekker, I have not been working on it solidly since the mid-80s. It's had long periods where, I, where the stories had to have been interrupted for you know, business reasons, publishing reasons, and that sort of stuff, which has been very frustrating for mm-hmm. me. So now, in the last several years, I've gotten back to it, and now it's, you know, I'm able to produce the stories on a full-time, regular basis again. So that's great. 
but right. but there was a long period of time when there was a period of, there was a 12 year gap of time when I didn't get to work on Trekker at all, which was just horrible. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's reasons for that. But anyway, to try to answer your direct question, when I first started Trekker, I had not written more than one or two or three, maybe very short stories professionally in comics. I'd been doing some writing on my own and stuff. But mm-hmm. Trekker, uh, from going, for, I, I was transition, transitioning from being a professional artist to being somebody who had to create and shape and then present an entire series, <laughs> a whole different set of issues. So I was thrilled and enthusiastic about it and completely in over my head. But at least I knew that. So while I knew I had this idea of a large, expansive, scaled science fiction, you know, something mm-hmm. like Dune, I wanted something really big. Oh, wow. I, knew I, yeah. I knew I wasn't the writer. I didn't have the chops to do that when I was first starting out. So the first several stories, I, I like I said, I sort of, took smaller bites. I thought I'll do a self-contained story that's sort of an action crime thing about this bounty hunter after the bad guys and getting tangled up with uh, a gang and stuff. I, I think I can, I think I can land that ship, but I wanted in from the very first story, I planted seeds for characters and made references to organizations and forces mm-hmm. that play in the larger universe that and, and those were planting seeds for the series that I wanted this thing to grow into. And for the first several stories, as I say, it was, you know, it was on a schedule and it had to come out. So I was kind of having to a large extent sort of make it up as I went along, which isn't the most successful way to tell the story that can hang together cohesively over a period of years. <laughs> right. It's challenging. So, yeah. So one of the benefits from all those interruptions that I had when I couldn't be working on Trekker was I was able to, that stuff sort of uh, germinated and distilled within me and clarified itself. I just became much better at my craft as both a writer and as an artist. So that by the time I was able to return to Trekker a number of years ago, like I say, and really I got back to when I could get back to without having to interrupt it anymore. That Mm -hmm. was the main thing I was waiting to, to have happen. So now I'm at the point where I just feel much more in command of my skills, and I have by now a very clear plan and an outline for the series, where it's going, and the broad beats of how I'm going to get there. So it's I just feel at this point the focus is tighter. I think I'm hoping I'm delivering this stories that are more, you know, more effective and uh, more muscular. Meaning there's mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope that there yeah. isn't any flab, there isn't any uh, we don't wander and take any detours down these paths i want everything that's in every issue to in some way build towards where we're going so that's so it's been a a lot of big changes but i'm hoping that there's also readers and i'm fortunately i've heard reports from readers who've read some of the early stories and then followed through to the ones i'm telling now and i it's important to me that there is a continuity there that the whole series holds together that there aren't these abrupt changes in tone or Mm -hmm. style or delivery or approach the whole series is supposed to be one coherent whole. So that's... uh, It is. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to ask you about that as well, if they were episodic in the sense where, uh, as a a newcomer to the series, would they need to go back and read the first issue or can they read them out of order? Which do you prefer to really get a sense of it? Oh, well, as the guy who's telling the whole thing, I prefer to people to read from page one right up till now, you know. Right. But it's but also as I've had the experience of going to the newsstand and picking up a comic book because it caught my eye and buying it and taking home and reading it and having no idea about what I just read. 
mm-hmm. because I've gotten in the maybe there have been twelve issues of this particular story arc that have come out before the one that I picked up, and four more issues are going to happen afterwards before the story gets resolved, and that drives me nuts, yeah. especially when I'm because the format I'm doing the stories in now I'm using Kickstarter to fund graphic mm-hmm. novels, so there is enough length in a graphic novel that while it's only one portion of this large overall story arc of Mercy St. Clair's gradual evolution as a human being. Let's say that's what the series is about. But this story in this particular volume has a beginning, a middle, and an end to that adventure. Okay. I, I want a reader to be able to come across any random issue of a Trekker trade paperback, pick it up and read it, know who she is, mm-hmm. what the world's about, see this story begin here, you bring it through to its resolution. It should be a completely satisfying read. And then you should say, that was good. And now I see that there's going to be, that there's more stuff coming. And it probably, mm-hmm. there was some cool stuff that happened before this. So then they might want to go back and read and then carry on. But I don't think you should get to the end of a graphic novel that can be whatever it is, you know, 100 pages long, whatever, and have it say to be continued. <laughs> I mean, in a way, <laughs> the, the journeys all continue until I get to the final page of the last story. But I want each book to feel like you, you close that last page and says, man, that was a great thrill ride. I can't wait for another one. Mm-hmm. Not, oh my gosh, I don't know how this story is going to be resolved. And then I have to wait for another one. So right. to have it work on that level. Yeah, no, that's great. And I know you touched on this earlier too. I came across a Gail Simone, comic book writer, mm. uh, called your main character, Mercy St. Clair, sexy but not sexualized. And how important was that to you to make sure that came across when you were creating her? It was the number, it was basically the number one thing, you know. I like like just about every artist I know. I enjoy drawing a, a sexy character, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, there's. I mean, you can just. It's so easy for that to become cheap and mm-hmm. pandering and dehumanizing. And as I say, I was going to be doing the whole job on this story, so it was all on my shoulders, and it was going to take. I knew it was going to take everything I had, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't devote myself to something that I that seemed cheap or easy (laughs) and uh, so uh, i i set a big challenge for myself and i mean i i i knew that that i was you know exposing myself to the possibility of some criticism if i didn't do it well if if the character didn't seem convincing and believable you know and uh, i'm a dude and i'm trying to write from a point of view of a woman character who who i wanted to be you know just just as real and feel like a human being as possible and so I just gave it the best shot I could, you know, and fortunately there were and are some strong, extraordinary women in my life. And, and so I borrowed a little bit of personality <laughs> and insights from them and a lot of just from inside myself, because, you know, in, in the end, she's a human being, <laughs> the characters yeah. and, and I am. And, she, you know, the reactions that she would have, I just think just any rational being or sometimes an irrational being <laughs> would, right. would act very similarly. I just, again, I, and that was the. The main point of the entire exercise to me was a character that sort of checked through, that I could be sitting at my table at one of these conventions. Mm-hmm. And th- this is the most flattering thing that happened in the early first couple of years as I was at a convention. And more than once, a guy would come up to me and says, Trekker is the only comic book that I can get my girlfriend to read. Wow. And, and you know, it, it was, I mean, nothing was more validating to me than to hear that. Yeah, that's a huge compliment. Yeah, that's exactly what I took. I mean, I just felt like, well, you know, that's that kind of mission accomplished in a way. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, as a female growing up in, in the 80s, comic books weren't 
really marketed or geared towards women back then. Mm -hmm. I didn't start reading comics until I was in my early 20s, I think. Mm -hmm. And I feel like now there are more women reading comics, but we're still only about 25%, I think, of the fans. Do you see that number growing? And what do you think needs to happen to get more female readers? I think it's growing. And I, I think what needs to happen is what's, well, again, we're, we, we there's been a big pause on the whole convention. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Process. But, but at least in, from my, and I'm just one guy working in the trenches. I don't have, I don't have a broad overview perspective of the, of the entire industry or the entire marketplace or whatever it is. But from my, in the trenches, you know, perspective, going to conventions, when I first started going to conventions, there were almost no women in at the comic convention. And, and at first, when I first thought this a number of years ago, I thought, well, is that just my imagination? That, that can't possibly be right. But then I heard, uh, it was Karen Berger, was, who was a major editor at DC Comics, who was responsible for getting Alan Moore to come over and write Swamp Thing, and oh. that that created the Vertigo line at, at DC, oh, yeah. which had a lot to do with the maturation. That was a, a huge evolutionary step was taken in comic books and a lot a lot of that is on Karen Berger's um, shoulders. Anyway, one time Karen was saying on a panel or something else that, that she said, Yeah, it was the San Diego Con and there was me and maybe two other women in the whole building. Wow. And that's well that seems to sort of validate my impression too. <laughs> and you go to a convention now and the place is just it feels to me like you know yeah. it's fifty fifty. There's as many women as there are men. Some of them are cosplayers, a lot of them are artists, you know, creators mm-hmm. that are tabling all around me. And then, of course, a lot of them are the attendees too. And I just, I think it's, uh, it's just, it's happening. I, I believe mm-hmm. it's happening. And you know, sooner or later, a lot of those attendees they're going to get the itch. <laughs> yeah, and they're going to start creating their own comics too. And uh, you know, women creating comics, people of character creating comics are just going to yeah. make the whole industry that much more, you know, inclusive and uh, rich it, it's and just, diverse. Yeah, yeah. And I just and and frankly, uh, I, I remember thinking a number of years ago, well, all these women being around, it, it's the guys are going to have to be on, you know, just going to keep us honest. Yeah, we have to start behaving ourselves like grownups now, not like <laughs> not like this this self indulgent, you know, adolescent power fantasy, you know, all this stuff that comics were sort of stuck in that, that awkward adolescence here in America a mm-hmm. lot longer than they were in Europe and in in, in Asia, Europe and in Asia. Comics were being used to tell all kinds of stories to all kinds of readers right. <laughs> and in all yeah. genres and styles of presentation. So that's another thing that's had a massive impact was when that when comic books, you know, which were created here, mm-hmm. and they emigrated across the oceans. And then when they started coming back here, I think that woke a lot of local creators up to say, we've got to step up our game because this yeah. industry, th- this art form is maturing and growing up around us. We have to find better, better voices to use. More, more growing up the voices used to, to get our job done. And make it more relatable for everyone, yeah. Well, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I felt that too. I've been going to Comic-Cons for probably about five, six years. And I usually go to the Seattle Emerald City Comic-Con. That's a great show. It's my favorite. My friend yeah. lives there, so I go visit her and we get to go to Comic-Con. And I felt that, as you were describing, uh, when I was there, it was very welcoming. I didn't feel, you know, there was lots of women, lots of people that look like me, you know, and so mm-hmm. it was very nice to just be able to walk up to a, a comic book, you know, a table like Image or Dark Horse, and mm-hmm. there was no uh, judgment or a condescension at all. It was just you were equal. So that has been nice to feel that change. 
Yeah, and I think that's what it takes is just safety in numbers or something like that. If you walk into a place and you don't see anybody in that building, in that room, that gathering that looks like you, mm-hmm. in you know, whatever category you want to put that in, mm-hmm. um, you, you're just aware of that. And, and, and it, it, it can make a difference. So, you know, the hats have to go off to the first whatever wave of, of women that, that started oh, going yeah. to conventions. And, you know, and they managed to beat down the door and make their way into the business and uh, and all those, you know, all those things. And again, I don't have the perspective of being a woman as an attendee or as a creator or as a reader. So so I can't speak definitively about this. I can mm-hmm. just say from my perspective, when I go to these, when I lift my head up from my table at the convention, <laughs> I see a sea of men and women, <laughs> girls and boys. And it's 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 a lot more pleasant. <laughs> yeah it's a yeah. lot more fun and stimulating just more you know, balanced wow, you know, yeah yeah exactly i mean so many more types of stories being told and it's just you know it, it reflects it reflects humanity better when yeah. we have when we have that going on yeah i don't know and also I, getting back to actually creating comics too i know that the creator of wonder woman uh william marston I believe there's been, you know, a documentary, just sort of how the women in his life actually influenced him to write Wonder Woman, create Wonder Woman. So there's that aspect, too, where there was probably more, just not admittedly, comic book writers back in the day that did have help from women. But at the time, it just wasn't accepted for the woman to take any credit, possibly. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. And there were women working in comics. They just tended not to be... uh whatever trumpeted tend, tend not to be highlighted um, mm-hmm. as much as was true in you know just about any business or industry that women were involved in it was like they were there but it was you know it wasn't talked. it was almost not talked about you know right <laughs> um which is just now we look back and then you shake your head with disbelief but that was just it was just uh don't upset the apple cart or whatever the hell was going on i don't know yeah but so there from the very beginning there were you know women working in comics but and also you know back in the you know the 40s the 50s even in the 60s usually the the people writing and drawing the comics weren't you know were credited with the the work in in major ways the the creators Mm -hmm. weren't the personalities weren't featured it was the characters that were featured the most that started to change in the in the mid to late 60s Stan promoting himself in the line of Marvel comics through his personality as much as just about anything else that he could, mm-hmm. and giving nicknames to Jack Kirby and <laughs> Steve Ditko oh, yes. and that stuff. So and then a few years later, when uh, Neil Adams came into the business and, and was just so phenomenally overqualified to draw comic <laughs> books that he sort of single-handedly forced the the publishers first at DC and then at Marvel to to shine more of a spotlight on the the creators that were making the books for them. But anyway, so so now we've got to this thing where you've got certain, you know, superstar writers and artists and, and uh, all that sort of stuff. So all sorts of dynamics that play with all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And like in the one of the trends that's been happening in um, our fiction book novel industry is indie books. And mm. I believe comic books now have an indie market uh, and that's been growing. Uh, have you seen any changes in that or anything that's been contributing that specifically do you encourage the indie market oh yeah i mean that that's been there's a long history of that actually i mean i mean heck it goes back to the 60s when there were you know underground comic books Mm. and then and i don't want to be i don't want to make this too much like a history lesson but the way comics were distributed so there's a little bit of business talk here which i'm which is not my expertise but 
but you know, comic books were originally distributed through what they call the newsstand market. So the books would be put on trucks and taken into the newsstands in big cities where you'd be selling all the newspapers and Time magazine, and there'd be a mm. stack of little comic books for the boy, the little kiddies to read, you know. Yeah. And a few companies sort of had a, had control. A few comic book publishers pretty much had control of the way those of, of the distribution of comics in that matter. So if you tried to start up another comic book company, you came up with the fact that you were blocked at getting your books distributed and put out into stores. Hard to sell comic books when they're on store shelves. That's terrible. So little companies would start up and fade and couldn't make it. And then in the late 70s, early 80s, they, they changed the way comics were distributed, started to change. And you had individual comic book shops would, would begin where they would buy the comics directly from the publishers and sell okay. them through their comic shops. Okay. And it, it was a game changer. And that allowed little companies like Dark Horse and Eclipse mm-hmm. and Kameko and First to start publishing because they no longer had to go through the same distribution system that they basically DC and Marvel had sort of a stranglehold on. Mm-hmm. So, so since then, this independent market grew up. And then as DC, I mean, as Dark Horse and some of those companies became bigger players and more you know, maybe call those, you know, major market players. Um, (laughs) Then another wave of independence have come up now. And now with the advent of the internet, you've got web comics and and very small press publishers. And what I'm using, Kickstarter, you can be, as I am, an individual creator, I'm basically self-publishing my own comic with the backing, with the direct backing of supporters who just want to pay me directly to get my comic from me. Yeah. So again, it's a it's a whole other evolutionary step. If you go to Kickstarter and and browse through the the, the comics and, and graphic novels, uh, you know section there, mm-hmm. uh, your head can spin. There are just it's <laughs> probably thousands, any, yeah, <laughs> thousands, any just about anything you can imagine. You can find people trying to do straight ahead sort of superhero comics. I'm sure they'd say with their own spin on it. But and then there's science fiction things and there's you know bio comics, autobio comics, and uh, fantasy comics and uh, and with this wide range of people, you can some people that just it's the first thing they just it's a passion project, it's their hobby, it's they just want to get it out there. And then yeah. there's people like me who've been working in the business for years, and we've got our story that we we want to take all of our experience and our professional chops and marry that with our passion and put right. out the one book that we hope is the defining thing in our career. So it's it's I just exhilarating want, to see it all. Yeah. And I want to hear more about your specific Kickstarter campaign. I actually just became a backer last night, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. I'm very excited to get my copy. Yeah. So tell us more about the, the Kickstarter campaign. What can people expect? What can they receive those benefits? Okay. Well, uh, first it, it's a uh, trekkerkickstarter.com for you out there that want to click on right away but so this is for uh, the book called trekker hunter's moon uh, and as i was saying before each one of these stories it is is a self-contained hopefully completely satisfying reading experience <laughs> in its own when you put them all together you get the whole canopy i'm trying to paint to this world but in some ways i hope this story will be will have some familiar elements to people who read trekker before mercy st Clair's is this hard-bitten tough driven action you know bounty hunter character but um and a lot a lot of those science fiction and action adventure story elements i want those to be in every single issue of trekker mm-hmm. I, I, it, it needs to deliver and check those boxes or it's not the trekker story 
Yeah. At the same time, I want each one to be different. The story before this one was sort of like a battle story. Mercy winds up tangling up with with a troop of soldiers in the middle of a wasteland of a or no man's land of a battlefield. So that mm-hmm. was going on. This one, she and a small her small band of uh, friends wind up out on a remote, raw, primitive moon, and oh, cool. they come face to face with a creature and there's a big story about how that creature came to be that's part of the overall you know backdrop of the series but for the purposes of this story i wanted it just to be a case of mercy against the monster <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a very and it goes back to all those uh, tarzan books by joe kubert that i loved mm-hmm. it's like tarzan it's like him and he's got a little you know knife made out of a sword and he's got to fight whatever the jungle creature is you know so i wanted to to strip this one down to just be that elemental battle a tooth and claw death match sort of so and that's a type of a story that i haven't quite told in trekker before so in some ways i hope and think this one might be uh, a little bit more intense uh, a little bit you know more ferocious in some ways than the other grittier yeah yeah I, i try to make each one have a different each story have a different texture you know have the setting evolve so that the readers and myself have something new to look forward to in each episode. And each one is also supposed to, in a way, ratchet up the stakes, you know, takes mm-hmm. mercy one step up the rung of the ladder of this increasingly higher stakes game that she's getting pulled into. She has to take a bigger part in the, the shaping of her world. Yeah. You just keep pushing the boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. That's the plan. <laughs> yeah. Now, when you first uh, created this character of Mercy St. Clair, was she the was the character did she come first or did your setting and world building come first it was the world building no i'm sorry it was the character i'm i'm only hesitating here because it's it it sort of came it was it sort of happened so organically and spontaneously let me think i mean like i said i knew i wanted a science fiction character and mm-hmm. i knew for me it would have to be somebody who was in some sort of an action adventure sort of swashbuckly role because I love Flash Gordon, you know, yeah. and, and and Han Solo and you know, oh. sort of that sort of stuff. And I also uh, loved Deckard from uh, Blade Runner. So, you know, th- oh my gosh, those yeah. sort of elements I wanted those. I, I needed a character that was the anchor, boom, you know, for the series. Mm-hmm. And that character was going to have to be on a long journey of self-exploration because I just find those stories the most compelling ones. So I started with Mercy and tried to build her up and but then sort of at the same time i was developing the world around her the city she was in the sort of situations that would be at play and that in turn sort of had its effect on how i continued to develop her personality her traits and stuff so that she would be able to interact with this world so mm. so the two sort of go back and forth organically i didn't create her in a complete vacuum okay. but the first impulse was a character and i had a feel for the core of who she was and the journey that I wanted her to go on. Although I, when I first started, I wasn't sure how the story was going to turn out. <laughs> the the yeah. long story of her life. <laughs> we never do, right? <laughs> right. In fact, I say now I know exactly how I think this series is going to end. Unless Mercy and Molly tell me otherwise. The two men, Mercy and her girlfriend Molly. You know, those, as you as a writer, yeah. you may have had the experience. And I'm sure you've heard other writers talk about the fact that they're writing in a book. And all of a sudden the characters start yep. to tell them, <laughs> yes. no, I'm not yeah. going to go in that room. I'm sitting down right here and having a drink right now. And then you, then you have to deal with that. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, they take so we'll over. <laughs> they can. Yeah. Yeah. You can have your outline and you can be very rigid, but no, when you start writing, it goes in different directions and that's part of the fun too, though, just to see where it goes and have unexpected things happen. I, I had a book where I was completely going to kill off a character. I had it set in my mind and then he ends up 
kind of being a hero at the end. So I couldn't <laughs> kill him off. But yeah, no, I totally get that. <laughs> That's great. If it, it surprises you, then hopefully it's going to surprise the readers too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, for those also who are just kind of finding out about Trekker, I'm curious, and don't give any weight, any spoilers if, if you don't have to, but what is Mercy's sort of inner conflict? Like, what is her story as far? We have the bounty hunter stuff, but what is like her inner issue that she needs to work on throughout the, the book arc? Um how to put it in a few words, Mercy sees herself as the series begins as a self-contained, you know, lone wolf, implacable, not necessarily killing machine, but bounty hunting machine. Mm -hmm. And that's perfectly fine, except it's completely untenable if you also happen to be a human being. Mm -hmm. And the, the rub of this series is Mercy is perhaps coming to the realization that she is a human being, which is a terribly incon inconvenient feature to have if you want to be an implacable killing machine <laughs> so so that's really i mean how do you how do you resolve that how do you find a balance point mm -hmm. uh, where, uh, where you can be a person and what does it cost you and what do you gain what do you lose and that's the journey that she's been on from day one and uh, what i love hearing about from the, is, is from the readers is when they when they see what's happening inside of mercy long before mercy does because she's really clueless <laughs> yeah <laughs> about a lot of things like we all are you know i mean i mean can't our friends all tell us more about ourselves than we know i think right. so yeah um, so that's you know that's the main thing so and, and uh the stage that and not to give away too many spoilers because mm -hmm. i hate giving away spoilers yes but i, I don't think i've uh, i think i've already tipped this pretty well in, in several of the stories that have the more recent stories especially is that you know mercy is being called to play a role on a larger stage than mm -hmm. than that black and white i shoot somebody and i get a paycheck for it that's you know that was her deal but it's not her deal now it can't be um, yeah and the stage that she is stepping onto is one where this lone wolf implacable bounty hunter thing that ain't going to cut it she's not going to be able to face the challenges she's going to be facing right. uh, all on her own and that's that's like <laughs> that's like having to learn how to be a team player, you know, all, all those sort of things. That is not yeah. in her wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, and as a storyteller, one of the one of my favorite things to do is take my character, who is so self possessed and so incredibly competent and capable in some ways, and put her in any situation where is where she is off balance. Mm -hmm. There's real juice in that, and uh, and that's where these stories have been heading. And uh, again, we're just going to keep as best I can, just sort of up the ante. And keep uh, evolving, and keep, yeah. Keep evolving and keep her pushing up against her friction points. You know. Yeah, I love characters like that. Actually, I think a lot of people do uh, that sort of lone wolf character, very independent, that doesn't want to rely on anyone. But mm -hmm. throughout, as the story you know goes on, you have to realize that you know people are there to help you. And it's well, okay. exactly. I, yeah, yeah I, I just I think it's I just think it's such a intellectual dead end mm -hmm. um, to have that character, and, and I just you know I just don't think you can play that out without it becoming, you know, repetitive and getting mm -hmm. to the point. Well, now you're just being now you're just being willfully stubborn and self-destructive. And am I supposed to be rooting for that behavior? I don't think so. Yeah. So I mean, that's just me and my, you know. But I mean, uh, when I first created Trekker, it was partially it was a re, it was a reaction to a lot of the comic books that I was seeing being done back in in the mid eighties. Uh, one of my, you know, one of my one of the one of the great runs at the time was uh, the run that Frank Miller did on 
Daredevil, mm-hmm. and uh, then he did a thing with Dark Knight and stuff like that. But man, it just got to the point where the characters were getting darker and bleaker mm-hmm. and bleaker. And I came, I just, it, it, I was reading one of them, and the phrase "adolescent nihilism" popped into my head. <laughs> um, and I just felt like, you know, and there's real juice in that because I was reading them myself and those stories are really powerful. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking that is an intellectual dead end, man. You, know, you get to the point where, you know, like where we're at now with a lot of mm-hmm. things going on in, in the pop culture storytelling where you yeah. can't tell the good guys from the bad guys. What's the point? What's the difference? Well, yeah. again, that's 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 wonderful to be moody and grumpy about that. I just think it makes for a pretty crappy worldview. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted a character who would start off wanting to be that you know that dark and that almost soulless or whatever you know <laughs> and she just wants to hold on to that position and I, I, so i was trying to be subversive i guess in a way where, where the readers start saying no mercy don't do that you need to be better than that you know yeah. um, that's not good for your whatever your spirit your soul your humanity so that was my my little subversive hidden agenda from the beginning of starting tracker i wanted to sort oh i'll pick this book up because she looks like she's a badass you know she's gonna <laughs> go out and kick some bad yeah yeah and then having me say, oh, shit, that's kind of depressing, isn't it? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Well, yeah, it gets old after a while, as you were saying. You know, with Batman, I've seen Batman done it, it just yeah. get darker and darker. And and we do like the the darker sides of, of ba- uh, Batman and Gotham City. But there is a point where you're like, okay, let's pull it back. He's still human underneath the mm-hmm. mask. And it's important to see those layers in characters. You can't be all good or all bad all the time. You have to have those, the growth be shown on the page. Otherwise people will lose interest or get depressed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, unless you have a lot more s- skill in the story and in, in the telling of those stories than I do, I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in my wheelhouse to tell that kind of story. Yeah. No, some of my favorite villains are ones that have layers and depth to them. Uh, mm-hmm. Not just scary for the sake of being scary. You, know, you have to have a clear motivation, I think, because every villain thinks he's the hero of his own story, essentially. Totally. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to read Checker Harvest, Hunter's Moon, excuse me. Hunter's Moon. I backed it last night. I was looking at the artwork. It looks gorgeous. Thank you. Um, just really excited about the whole bounty hunter aspect and sci-fi. It's just right up my alley. So I'm really excited. Tell me the website again for the Kickstarter campaign. It's a trekkerkickstarter.com. I made it as straightforward as I could. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes too. And then also you have a website, ronrandall.com. I do, yeah. So I actually found it through there. So you can actually go on there too and just click on the link. It'll take you right to the Kickstarter campaign. And you also have some exciting backing news. I mean, the project is pretty pretty much happening, if, if I'm correct. Yes. Yeah. I set, a, I set an initial funding goal to be one, as I have with, this is like the fifth Trekker Kickstarter campaign that I run. Okay. And I, I always to cover the the cost of the printing the book and getting out to backers but it doesn't pay me for you know the work of writing and drawing the, <laughs> the books and there's a reason that i do it that way but the, the point is i set the funding goal we hit the funding goal on day one of this campaign and so since then we've just been uh, adding stretch goals to make the book bigger and add some extra bonuses posters and uh, yeah. um, stickers and right now for the first time ever I'm, i've got a stretch goal of a cool enamel pen oh and, and so the stretch goals are fun because they add nice little extras enhancements for the readers and everything but also some of the money from the stretch goals quite honestly 
goes back into my pocket to start to pay me back for the months that it takes to, to tell one of these stories. So, yeah. and this campaign is thriving. It's it, just as we were talking, I told you this mm-hmm. might happen. We yeah. just hit the $50,000, um, awesome. which is great. Now, a lot of that does go again for the cost of making the book, but some of it's going to wind up in my pocket and that's going to let me tell the next story. So that's, uh, yeah. that's been exciting. That's so awesome. Congratulations. That's great. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad. I knew as soon as you said, you're like, it's some waiting. I had a feeling it was going to happen within the hour. <laughs> so uh, maybe just talking about it, we brought it. Good luck. <laughs> Let's hope. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. I've had a pleasure meeting you and I can't wait to chat with you again. I want you to, you know, obviously you've been on a lot, so I want you to come back on <laughs> in the future. And yeah, no, it's been really fun. Thanks, Melissa. It's been great talking to you too. Awesome. Well, for everyone, please visit ronrandall.com and find out more about the Trekker Kickstarter campaign. Can you tell that I found the features of effects on my mixer? Sorry, I'm, I'm having too much fun with that. We're back. And uh, again, Ron, you're amazing. Thanks for coming on the show. I love having you on. I love having you talk to each one of our interviewers. Your next time you come on, I'll talk with Jeff. I don't think you've talked with Jeff yet. So then you get the whole round of all the people on the show. And uh, be sure to go out there and check out Hunter's Moon from Trekker from Ron Randall. It's amazing. Mercy St. Clair is, uh, is an incredible character. And it's been around for you know three decades here now. And, and four decades now, I guess. And... Uh, I, uh, I have started reading my volume one and I've read some of the other ones that I've gotten. I backed every one of these ones on Kickstarter. And I'm already back in this one too. And I started reading some of the older stories of Trekker and dude, they are amazing. So get out there, back this book, link in the description, link all over Twitter, everywhere. Just Google search Trekker, Hunter's Moon, you'll find it. Thank you, Melissa, for doing the interview. Thank you again, Ron, for coming on. I can't wait to have you back on to talk about more amazing stuff. Well, guys, that's a show. Uh, we're gonna end it there. You know, I got nothing else more to say. Well, you know, I do. Have, I do have something more to say. What I want to say now, you hear me say every show. You show. What I'm gonna say now, you hear us say every show in the outro is uh, head over to Spliverse.com and check out all of our back issues. If you like, here's talking to Ron. Here's talk to him like six or seven more times. Here's talk to people like Greg Smith, who actually holds the record for number of guest spots on the show with like 12 shows or something like that. Um, he also has his own show or a couple of shows on the network, like Funny Book Forensics, and he's also on Nerd uh, from the Crypt, and he's on. Um, narrative gunslingers he's a lot of stuff and, and he's a writer too so go check out greg smith check out all of our shows all of our back issues all of our articles our reviews our previews all the cool stuff that we have over on spoilerverse.com and while you're there click on that store link go and pick up a t-shirt or a hoodie or a face or something cool help support the site help support what we do we get a dollar or two from that hills right back into the site helps pay for some bills you know, pay for the hosting you pay for the software we use the hardware we use for all the people on the show it's a lot of people involved in this it takes a lot of dollar bills to make that work you can help out by looking fly yourself picking up a t-shirt or a hoodie well, guys, that's it. There's one thing left to do, and that's in an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu compels you to do, open your mind and read more. More, more, more. Sorry, I'm probably going to get yelled out by Kendrick for using that, but whatever. Bye. Bye.